0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a Radio.com
2: sports station.
3: This is this the point where Minko's supposed to point to me? What is this? Why do you get up and run out of the studio? What's going on here? Ah, he's so busy on Sunday mornings. Busy with what? Seriously. I've watched him work. It's not that difficult. Oh, alright. Let me be kind. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Oh, I know I'm going to get in trouble with him for that one. We are going to have a good program today. I hope you are well. I've been looking forward to our discussion for some time. With the guest who is on with us for both hours of our show today, joined us back in March of this year, and at that time, We planned on the idea that he would be with us, and he was kind enough to join us for the two hours of our show today. He is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. Dr. John Huber is joining us on our program. Uh, He is a clinical forensic psychologist, and we're going to be talking about a number of things. Regarding um, mental health, um, there are so many different areas where potentially we can go in discussion. First of all, it's nice to have you join us again.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here in studio. I love that.
3: And uh, very kind of you to um, come in to the program this morning. Um, What we will do as well is um, pretty much have the phones open throughout the program today because we're going to touch upon a number of topics. And I have a feeling some of these are going to um, strike a chord with some of the folks listening to us. And I always like when we get listeners involved, sometimes people wait Way too late in discussions to uh, try to jump in, and then we're crunched by time, and we know, just don't have a chance to get to them, and that always bothers me. So 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Now, I want to talk with you about a, a number of different things, but I'm also going to try to take this discussion, as I always do, from the perspective of someone—and this will be a shocker to you, <laughs> Dr. Huber— who has never heard us in discussion, okay? Um, and, you know, you and I were talking a half hour or so before yes. uh, the program, and it, it, it's like we've known each other for 50 years, right? exactly. because we're able to just jump into a, a discussion uh, like that. But for somebody who has never heard us talk before, they hear mainstream mental health, they hear... A clinical forensic psychologist, and they're thinking, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is all of this? Okay. How do you explain, first of all, what a clinical forensic psychologist is, and secondly, what mainstream mental health is all about?
2: Well, first of all, I am a clinical psychologist, first and foremost. I'm trained to work with uh, extreme behavioral differences, for lack of a better way to put that. Um, Anything from severe cognitive disabilities to severe mental health issues like schizophrenia, uh, borderline personality disorder, Uh, I do a lot of things in those arenas, Mm -hmm. work with a lot of narcissistic people because I also have that forensic side on me. And the forensic means pertaining to the law. And my training includes doing things like competency to stand trial evaluations, Uh, so when you know a judge or an attorney is like wait my client there's something not right with them Uh, before they can proceed in court they have to make sure the person understands the consequences of their behaviors they understand the differences uh, in maybe their reality versus the real world reality Mm. things like that they understand the judge is uh, assigned or selected by society to be a a decision-maker for us, and if there's a jury there, that they also can act as a decision-maker. And uh, you start there, and that's kind of the crux of everything because once, once you know a person is competent to stand trial, they're able to do things like plea bargain. They're able to be held uh, accountable for their actions. And if they're not, uh, you have some other things that, that could be going on. There could be some serious psychosis, for example, going on, and they're not safe. And then the judge turns around and asks someone like me to, hey, is this person really a threat to themselves or others? Changes the nature of my evaluation. I have to usually do more stuff on top of that. And uh, and then the judge may look at a, some kind of a civil commitment, depending on the state they're in, that type of stuff. Uh, but basically, it has to do with pertaining to the law. Now, my specific field, I work with some civil and criminal attorneys. I've I've gone in and worked on... Uh, double homicides, carjackings in federal court, in state courts. I've done everything from child custody evaluations all the way up to uh, for uh, where I'm at in Texas. We you know, ran for four years. We, we finally decided that it uh, took too much manpower for what it's worth, but we were doing the uh, uh, violence uh, risk assessment for adult probation for mm-hmm. a couple counties. And so people would come through, and the judge would go, is this person safe to let out of our doors and go live with family, maybe on some kind of probation? And uh, and we had to make not decisions. The judge ultimately do that, but we had to make recommendations based on actuarial data, you know, stuff. People done research on this, and we know that there's a statistical chance of such-and-such such percent that you will be able to, or you will be able to maintain your life for the next eighteen months without getting into a fight with somebody, that kind of stuff. And then the judge looks at that and makes a decision. And uh, right now, I'm actually, you know, we've had a lot of uh, mass shootings in schools, mm. and uh, uh, we also have the mass shootings in the workplace. And then we have the seductive serial killer, and. Uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff with that. It started, man, several years ago with you know the the mass shootings, which actually when you look at the school shootings, you can go back to almost 1825, I think it is, to one of the first recorded uh, school shootings here in the United States. Really? Yes, sir. And uh, it was actually on the last day of that school. And the kid was horsing around. School mom sent him home. And he went and got his deer rifle and came, came back and it was a one-room schoolhouse and everybody in that school Eww. was terminated. Eww. So, I mean, th- these aren't new things. You know, it's just it, like we think about serial killers. I mean, they go way back. Um, probably one of the most prolific one was was in the early 1900s, late 1800s in Russia. She was a madam of, uh, a, a, madam of a brothel and she didn't like men being mean to her girls. And if they did, they would actually go into town, find out if that guy was married and talk to the wife. And if she was being beaten too, the next time he came in, they would take him out. Wow. And it's estimated up to 400 men she took care of. Whew. So that's a form of civil justice, right? Yikes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: wow. So it never hurts to be kind. Yes, that's, that's quite, quite true. Um, when we talk about these you know, these mass shootings. Um, There's an interesting idea that I wanted to touch upon, and this kind of leads us into this perfectly, is this idea of what are referred to, as I understand, as mental health warrants. How would that work as a way to, I guess, try to prevent mass shootings, mass murders?
2: Well, what we have to understand is, you know, we have some civil rights in this country, Mm -hmm. and we want to protect those. So when somebody goes out and says something somewhat threatening, vague, not necessarily specific, somebody sees it, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, or they're talking about it in front of a bunch of people, they pick up the phone, they call the police. The police Mm -hmm. come out, and they have to make a decision. Is this, you know, free speech, or is this an actual terrorist threat the problem is police are police they're not psychologists they're not sociologists and they're being called into place to act like that and they don't like it uh and if they're wrong you don't like it you know i mean as a civilian so what can we do to protect that mostly what they do at that point is they write a report this is what was said we got these statements this person complained that kind of stuff and it goes into a file Mm mm-hmm And if we look at um, the last major school shooter in South Florida, over the previous two years, there was something like 18 visits from police officers who legally their hands were tied. There there was nothing there. He hadn't actually broken the law. Mm -hmm. And if there would have been some way for them to move forward and working with the judges and stuff that I work with in in Central Texas, I started having a dialogue with them. And they talked about there's got to be a way, and they they think, you know, we came up with this kind of over a period of months talking with these uh, uh, judges, this idea of a mental health warrant. Where now that report can go to a judge if the police officer like, you know, there's just something not exactly right with this person. Mm -hmm. And then send it to the judge. The judge can look at the evidence, the report. And then say, yeah, let's let's pull that guy in and have him assessed by a forensic psychologist who does does things like risk assessment.
3: Okay. Let's hold that thought. I wanna come back on this. There's a lot more to get to in discussion. We've got a ton of things to T- tackle today and we'll also try to get to uh, calls 877-337-6666 we're talking with dr john huber on our program on the fan oh i know i'll be there for that good morning everybody this is bob Salter. brian rascona is at the controls we are in discussion with dr john huber on our program he is a clinical forensic psychologist chairman for mainstream mental health and you were talking um, about this idea of mental health warrants and explaining that but i'll tell you what this may take us a bit off okay. that subject in discussion, but I also mentioned the fact that I want to try to open up the phones for people calling, and I know um, our first caller, Sam, in Denver, has been holding forever. Sam, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan. Okay,
4: thank you. Good um, morning. I just wanted to get uh, doctor's opinion on the use of medicinal marijuana. Um, you know, in New York... Uh, I mean, I live in Colorado where everything is legal. But, you know, in New York, I, I know that uh, it's very, very difficult to get uh, almost threatened with arrest. And is it fair that the state has this stance uh, to criminalize people for trying to get better for their health? Well, um,
2: you know, you... I, I know I have.
4: I personally have a family member in an upstate New York hospital. I'm trying to get her some, some oils and they're threatening to, that's uh, an arrestable offense. And, you know, why does the state need to criminalize people? Uh, and while every other state is legalizing this.
2: Well, that, that becomes a a big social issue right there. Uh, I I do agree with you. I think there's lots of medicinal reasons for, for a lot of these, not just marijuana, but for other recreational drugs, the research on psilocybin mushrooms and depression, um, you know, in my own practice with a, with an MD, we do ketamine assisted psychotherapy, uh, ketamine assisted uh, drug rehab. It's amazing some of the success we're having with those. So, so I know there's lots of value there. But what we have to remember is that you know the state is actually us, the people, and just like what happened in Colorado when the people said, "Okay, we've had enough." We're tired of being criminalized for something that some of us are using for more than recreational reasons. And uh, we, we need to have access for that. And, you know, we're doing the same thing in Texas. It's slow in Texas, you know, as you can imagine, right in the Bible belt. Uh, but that's, that's what needs to happen. You know, the people need to stand up and say, Hey, this is what we want and we're going to do it, or we're going to get you out of office. And you have to be real, really willing to follow through with, with your threats as a voter and, Yeah,
4: I'm really focusing on the state of New York. Um, They they seem to have this uh, obsession with with criminalizing people, um, and they've been doing it for years. Um, I'm tending to believe it's the police lobby and the the, the police unions who don't want this legal. And and now the politicians are are talking about it up in Albany, and they can't wait they're arguing who's going to get, you know, the, the hand in the cookie jar rather. And, and meanwhile, the the, the the prescriptions are incredibly difficult to get in New York. And, you know, it's leaving some patients in, in a real problem. I mean, the, do these patients, this particular patient I'm thinking about, uh, do they want to get addicted to the and, um and other painkillers while the uh, General Assembly in New York, you know, uh, debates this while every state really massachusetts and every other state vermont uh, has has legalized this um i mean it's it's what what is supposed to be a progressive state is 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 far from progressive um you know they they it's i think it's 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 run by the cops i I think the cops are, are pulling a lot of the strings here
2: well, and, you also uh, need to follow the money, and who, who's you know it's the same reason for prohibition. And once prohibition got lifted, what happened? The the tobacco and the alcohol industry went after marijuana and made it illegal. So it, it's it's follow the money, and uh, you know big business has a lot to do with that. The, the drug companies that have inferior drugs that that may or may not do a better job than the marijuana are out there. Look, we can't you know capitalize on marijuana like we can on whatever this drug is here, this opiate, whatever. Uh, so follow the money and and make sure we speak our mind and, and do it at the voters booth. Don't just do it on the telephone. Yeah,
4: I, and in New York State, it seems to be the three Cs. It seems to be, you know, cops, courts, and corrections. And up, especially upstate, that's where the money is, and that's where the these state jobs are. And uh, I, I'm really... Going back to the fact that that I'm really fixated on the state of New York. It's mm-hmm. insane. Um, in Colorado, the, this, the, the marijuana has um, and I, you know has reduced the, the opioid epidemic, um, and you know it, it's you've got it. It's follow the money. And in, in New York, it's the money is the state jobs and, and corrections, and it's it's really sad.
3: Sam, thank you for your call mm-hmm. this morning. Thank you for your patience on the phone too. Thank you. Interesting thoughts you've shared with us. Um, Before we pause for our update (laughs) and messages, and listen, people will take us in many different areas here, and that's fine. Um, Exactly. I want to try to encourage as many folks as possible who want to join the discussion, do it. 877-337-6666 is our number here at uh, WFAN. Dr. Huber is with us. He's certainly not afraid to talk with uh, folks listening to us. You were talking about the um, idea of these uh, mental health warrants and how this kind of developed, I believe you were up to the point where you're talking about, um, working with, um, or talking with judges yes. about this.
2: Yes. Cause we, we got to have a gatekeeper, somebody who's mm-hmm. monitoring and, you know, making sure that we're just not picking somebody as a target and a victim. Hey, let's just go after this person. You know, they own a gun. We're they're crazy. You know, uh, just because you own a gun doesn't make you crazy. Just, you know, um, and, uh, we want to protect our rights, our ability to speak our mind. Having an official like a judge to step in and say, okay, you know, yeah, this person is speaking their mind, but there's something not quite right there. They're not grounded in reality. There's something off. Let's have somebody who is trained and licensed to do this type of an evaluation and mm-hmm. find out. You know, a lot of times people have the will to do harm to other people, but they act absolutely have no means to do that. Uh, whether they're, they're, uh, Incapacitated somehow, they're disabled somehow. Whether you know maybe quadriplegic, paraplegic, they can't act on their actions. The government and society doesn't necessarily need to get involved and and shut that person down. There's mm-hmm. already you know there's already things there, and that may be their only means of communication is by being that extreme in their intent and things like that. You need somebody to, to clarify: is that really somebody who? not only has the will, but the means to follow through with that. And that involves investigation. That's where the police department has already met with these people. And we can follow through. We have that police report with us. It makes it easier for people like myself who are trained to do this to look at those things. Then they present the evidence back to the judge. So it goes back to the judge a second time. And oftentimes that judge is going to be a second judge because they're not working 24 hours a day. You know, they rotate around. Exactly, right. So now you've got... Potentially two judges looking at this. The first one who said maybe something's not there, and the se- second one is saying, okay, now let's look at this report and see if there really is something there or not. And then the judge makes the decision. Again, the psychologist, for example, in when I do child custody evaluations, I sit down and I, I draw a minimum of five different profiles for the judge to look at Of this parent gets this kid and that kid and these kids and however – based on this parent's parenting style, this kid has this disability, this other kid doesn't have a disability, here's their personality types, and what we know about actual base rates of interactions between parents with different personality types and children with different personality types versus parenting style. We do essentially the same thing. We present those different profiles. So here is the likelihood, based on these dated you know, research-driven tools we have, and the judge then has an ability to make an informed consent. Okay, maybe this person just says, "Hey, you go out, we're going to monitor you for 6 months if if you get out and go see a therapist, you know, once a month or every whatever the judge deems. It's it's amazing how they become good physicians and start ordering medicine and things like that in the courtroom. But but they do it because, you know, society gives them the power and and doctors aren't going to say you have to take this medicine because there's this ethical thing that doctors have that say we can't force you to take medication. A judge can Society says the judge can deem that necessary. So how do you take a, a different medicine? That all depends too because mm. if you can't swallow a certain medicine and you don't want to take it, it's kind of hard for a, you know a doctor sometimes to give it to you.
3: So if somebody is refusing to comply with, an order they wind up being in contempt Would that they, mean, they
2: would that? wind up in contempt and what would happen at that point uh the the thought is the judge can go ahead and order the assessment because they are in contempt of court mm-hmm. they pull them into the courthouse or the jail county lockup, and then someone like myself would go in there and do an evaluation there and then they've complied with their court order and they can walk out the door of the jail
3: Dr. John Huber is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Back to the phone we go at 877-337-6666. Jose in the Bronx is up next. Jose, good morning. Welcome to The Fan.
2: Good morning.
5: Hey, good morning. Good morning, doctor. I I'm usually I usually turn in the morning to listen to the sports, and uh, today find myself in, in listening to you guys in the previous caller, and I'm fascinated by the stuff. Um, I actually work in, the, in a psych ward myself, and...
0: I'm not job, man. a doctor.
5: I'm just a patient care tech, you know, yes. and, um, uh, but, um, it's, uh, every day we see what's going on and every day we see, um, patients, um, or recipients coming through, through the doors and it's the revolving door. And we, um, we push this medication down the throat that yes. we have no guarantee that's going to work. And, and you know, actually we we can almost say that they're going to return. I mean, we can almost guarantee that they will return and a lot of times you know, I know that the doctor there and a lot of other doctors because I not mother want to use them myself, but you know you guys, especially in this state, can say um, go smoke a joint you, you feel better afterwards." but I know that you guys could if you guys you know if the laws change- if the laws change here especially in new york i I see a lot of people who Take or who takes um, psych- psychotic medication and all this stuff that would be a lot better off if it, if they just smoke a joint, you know. In my personal opinion, but you know, serving the um, recipients come back and, and you know every day, you know, I I just feel like it's, this whole situation is not for the betterment of the recipient. It's it's, it's all money and it's it's not the right thing though.
2: Well, Jose, I think I think there's a whole lot going on. That that you're right. In my state, and in state of New York, we can't say go smoke a joint, you'll feel better. Um, But I I do know there there's research out there that depend depending upon what your your issue is, whether it's anxiety, depression, that type of stuff. That that uh, for the mental health side, that the marijuana can help, uh, but. It's, it's actually not for everybody, and there's different strains of marijuana. For example, we've seen certain strains of marijuana that actually makes your anxiety worse. And believe it or not, the people who know best about that are the people who work in the legal dispensaries. You can go in there, and they'll tell you, oh, if you have anxiety, don't take this strain. You want this one over uh, here. I agree
5: I agree with that. And, but all I'm, say- all I'm saying is that if I was born in this country and raised in this country, I know for a fact that I would have been diagnosed. With at least a, a ADHD or or some type of anxiety, and I know I would never dare to take any kind of medication for that. But you know, ever since I started smoking, my life has gotten better, and my personal life, my marriage, Excellent. and everything
2: else. Good for you.
5: So right. yeah, so I, I that's why I can say that with with su- such certainty because I myself experience it, and I also see. Patient who just take their regular medication and there's no no betterment for the
3: recipient. Jose, thank you for your call this morning. We do appreciate You're it. welcome. 877 337 6666 is our phone number here at the FAN this Sunday morning. He's on deadline. Hmm. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is a clinical forensic psychologist, he's the chairman for mainstream mental health. And he's in studio with us on our program today, uh, sharing a lot of information. We're talking about a variety of different um, topics surrounding um, mental health. Um, We're going to get into some other interesting areas of discussion. And what I've said we will do also is to try to take in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan You wanted to mention something before we take our next caller.
2: Exactly. Uh, I am here tonight, actually, at 5.30. Between 5.30 and 6, we start at Comic Strip Live. It's uh, New York's funniest reporter, and I'll be hosting that, and I'll actually be there with uh, uh, someone I consider my friend. In fact, I was just on the phone with him last week, a gentleman, Jerry Cooney, the the amazing boxer Mm -hmm. uh, who – has has come on my show several times and talked about his experiences with depression and alcoholism and and how he's dealt with that over the years and uh, he, he he's a struggling alcoholic and he stopped, had his last drink in 1988 and he'll still tell you you know he's, he's got to think about it every day and uh, it's it's a challenge so just come on out and support us in fact uh, in honor of one of our other calls I think I'm going to wear a prison orange um i have some amazing prison orange scrubs that i wear at the hospital because it kind of breaks the ice with my patients and and uh, i think this morning's caller helped me make a decision as to what i'm going to wear on stage today so and i i do a few jokes myself and uh um my kids are in town and they're like do we have to go we've heard all your jokes do we have to go um and the funny thing is they're 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 the ones who I joke about most of right, the time. Right. And it's, it's actually funnier when they're there. Cause they start heckling me. That's not what happened. You know, nice. you know how teenagers <laughs> <Nice>. are. <So>. <laughs>
3: <Subtle>. <laughs> well, let's hope for a very successful night tonight. Thank you. With that too. Uh, back to the phones. We go Eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six 337 66 is our number. Uh, Jim has been holding in New Jersey for a long time. Jim, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan.
2: Hey Jim.
6: Hi, Dr. Um, I'm calling you because my wife has fibromyalgia and she's on some voltage and Europe.
2: I lost them. Whoops.
6: It's
7: just like it's not working anymore. In the beginning it was working
6: and then um
7: it got less effective and less effective. And I was wondering if there's any other kind of alternative
1: medications she could take to help with the symptoms with the pain and the the fogginess of her brain, you know, the fibrofog they call it, where she has a uh, You
6: know, she has some depression issues with it and uh, a
2: lot of confusion and stuff with the Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, You know, and, and you need to always consult with, with a licensed physician in in your, in your state, in your neighborhood, somebody you're comfortable with, but you should take different things to them. For example, in my clinic, again, I work with a, a, a medical doctor, I'm a PhD psychologist and, uh, for, we actually have several chronic pain patients with fibromyalgia, and we've been able to mediate a lot of their pain using uh, ketamine and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Now, not everybody and everybody's willing to do this. Pain medication doctors should be familiar with ketamine and its potential value, but it also, in, in fact, they just recently uh, uh, allowed to go to market a new ketamine uh nasal spray for depression. So, I mean, we know it is significant. Now, there's lots of research out there to support that. There's lots of research out there uh, on pain management with ketamine. And it's not to cure all. It's not going to work for everybody. And, in fact, in my practice, one of the things w- we know it's inappropriate for certain uh, mental health issues and uh, personality types. So we require them to get a psychological evaluation before we do it just to make sure we don't have problems or create problems with the ketamine. We want to be as safe as possible. And uh, it, it is a safe medication. We use it in child surgeries, you know, with little kids, because we don't necessarily want to give them a regular general that may keep them out for hours. This has a half life yeah. of ten or fifteen minutes, and it's over in about forty. Yeah,
7: yeah because like I said, uh, between the uh, fentanyl and the Lyrica, it just it's, it's not not doing it any, anymore, and um. It, well, you know, the,
2: there, there's a lot of reasons for that, and what you're talking about is, is neuroleptic pain, and that is pain that's caused by the nerve cells themselves, and yes. regular types of opiate pain medications don't work very well for that. We've had yes. some success uh, with about uh, three out of four of our patients with fibromyalgia in my, in my clinic in Texas— uh, I I can't guarantee you because you know we we have a, a very systematic way. Not everybody administers the medication the way we do, but I I know because there's lots of research coming out of New York and like that on ketamine. There are people around here who who do that. We, you're just going to have to do some exploration, and I would start with your own physician. And if they don't give you the answer you like, keep moving forward and educate yourself.
6: Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate. It.
3: Thank you. Travel safely, Jim. Thanks for your patience on the phone. Next up, we go to uh, whoops to Tom in Westchester. Tom, good morning. Welcome to the Fan.
6: Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm not sure this is his expertise, the doctor, but uh, my question involves that I'm a, I'm on heavy pain medication for stenosis and for having titanium rods in my back, and recently they've been cutting back on the pain medication. Because of the opioid yes. crisis throughout yes. the country, which I understand entirely, uh, it's way out of control and has to be curbed. My problem is, and I've talked to my doctors about this, is nowhere from the government have I seen or read what they're doing for people who are in need of medication, and then now curtailing that, and and the mental uh, strain that it has caused me has increased. pain and my able uh, my ability to handle uh, uh, my you know uh, my problem right now and I'm just wondering if you heard anything from the government that is allowing people who have legitimate reasons to be able to receive pain medication because my doctors tell me they're trying to curb it and push everyone towards therapy and marijuana and they have that's pretty much
2: that's pretty much what's happening uh, again, it it's didn't a,
6: work it's, when I tried it. Right, I'm it's sorry, a, it's a,
2: it's a knee-jerk reaction, and they're taking right. some patients who have been on pain medications because they need it, not because they're necessarily addicted. But right. you, you know, your body develops a tolerance with those medications, so you have to keep managing that. And if you've been with right. a pain doctor for a long time, there's a likelihood you're on some really high doses of medication, and the government has has come through and just kind of done a blanket. Across the board, no more than this medication, no more that Which medication. Which I
6: understand entirely, but my, well, my problem is there's a reason
2: is, for it, but there's also a reason for doctors yeah. practicing medicine and working with their patients and getting them the help that, they need.
6: Yeah, but they tell me their hands are tied. They are
2: actually that, uh, That's across there's the nation. It's
6: been a blanket uh, uh, movement throughout the country, yes. and you, you have no,
2: And so with the I'm titanium rods, the titanium rods, we've actually had yeah. several patients come through with that. And, again, it's using the ketamine. And uh, what that does is those tiny titanium rods are, are emitting or are causing a, a constant pain. It's there all the time. Is that and, not correct? And my
6: back is fused, too. So I, I have a number of things. Exactly. So, my, so what's happening is hips,
2: your I, body, that's your new normal. And the ketamine helps reset your brain to say, that's normal. Don't don't receive that as a pain message anymore. And Would if you, you have a recommendation the energy,
6: besides that? for me to ask
2: them about uh, you know um, I, I would recommend that you start doing research ketamine is k-e-t-a-m-i-n-e and right. and I would look in at for clinics it's here avenue. Yeah. yeah and because I, I don't yeah I wasn't I wasn't planning on having a ketamine clinic discussion this morning so I'm I didn't sorry, go. I I know I didn't, no, no, it's a yeah. good question though and it's something that I do in my practice and I know what we do and what we do back in Texas and uh you know, it, well,
6: let me just tell you, before they curtailed cut the medication, I was able to function, yes. uh, go out. I'm a retired uh, person, and I was able to be active in my life. Since they cut on my medication, I've become much more sedentary because of the pain, because I can't walk as much because of the pain, and now I'm just barely getting around. And it, to me, it just seems somewhere along the line, the government has to say X amount of people all legitimate in their, you know true pain. Absolutely, and, and I, I can it, say
2: as a chronic pain person myself, sports injuries from when I was a, a teenager. Right. Uh, that you know, after thirty years of that, I you yeah, know, th- I, and I all used that? Yeah. I used the ketamine, and with my with the doctor I currently use with my practice, he goes, he convinced me to try it because I was very skeptical, and oh, I used and it, it myself. I, I I don't take opiates anymore. Period. And, uh, going on function, three, three uh, years and, oh, uh, good. you know, I have still pins in my shoulder. Uh, I yeah. have, I was using Sinvisc in my knees. I love the yeah, stuff. that allowed me function.
6: And, uh, and, uh, oxycodone, which are, I know very heavy, but I've been on them for a number of years, but they did allow me to function Absolutely. as a normal human being it, for
2: a while. And that's what but now
6: this, uh, this blanket statement across the board of, Cutting all medications—it's
2: uh, it's nationwide. I don't know. It
6: seems very drastic for people who are in that need of it. You
2: know. I, um, I
3: agree. Tom, thank you for your call this morning. Certainly, good luck as you continue. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. And thank well. you, guys, very much for taking the call. Thank all you, right. John. Yep. Bye, bye. Have a good day, Tom. Next up, we go to Gary in Colts Neck, New Jersey, who's been holding for a while. Gary, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to hey, the fan.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I'm just turned on the radio a little while ago. Beautiful out here, and uh, got a question. I was out of work for a little over a couple of years. I'm a landscaper, not a good one, but I'm a landscaper. Um, <laughs> Honestly, actually, I've been I doing it a long it. time thirty thirty three years, you know. And you know, it's it's crazy, but I never thought I'd ever recover. To be totally honest, which I had neuro Lyme disease. Wow. It was so bad for me. I was an athlete growing up bang up your body, you get used to living with pain. Right. So nobody wants to hear you, your wife, your kids. So what do you do? You take some Advil, whatever. So at the end of the day, it's the norm, the norm, the new norm. Well, I'm 51 years old. All I can tell you is I went through so many different doctors. No one knew what I had. Every year I get tested for Lyme disease. Everything comes back negative, negative, negative. But, oh, it's great. Your cholesterol is great. Your triglycerides are great. And you're negative on Lyme. So, well, believe it or not, I went to a doctor, and I had three bands of Lyme, mycoplasma, parvovirus, herpes-6, all from the bacteria in my body. But I had Epstein-Barr virus when I was a young kid. And let me tell you, that starts the whole process of the immune system shutting down. Well, I got infected by a tick or ticks. Who the heck knows? I had them on me. You pull them off. I don't know. You can't find these things. Sometimes they could be in your back, back of your head. You don't know. your groin area. You never looked. Mm-hmm. So... I was on all kinds of things, medication. They threw this, that, all kinds of wacky stuff. I got off everything, and I just did it with a little bit of CBD oil without marijuana in it. I'm all for medical marijuana, and I could have been on it. I chose not to, um, only because I had to try to still work in between, and I just didn't like the feeling of being,
2: Absolutely. you know, dopey
1: all day. So my thing is, is that. People can't drive as it is. And what I'm worried about, I'm all for marijuana legally, for medical. But if doctors out there decide to just give this, 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 and out to everybody, I'm very concerned. You know, I just think they're going to abuse the whole thing. Just because I chose not to go that route, I did things differently. Uh, Cutting out my gluten, cutting out my sugars, mold I had in my house. Alcohol, occasionally. I don't have, I don't drink alcohol at all. And let me tell you what. I feel tremendous. Um, at the end of the day, I never thought Gary would be back. Mm-hmm. And I'm so clear. I just worry about people because I hear this every day. Everybody's in
7: pain and pain and pain.
1: I just think if they just start cutting out all their gluten and sugars alone, because I had spirochetes running rampant in my body. I detox my body every day. And let me tell you. I feel unbelievable. I feel like I'm 20 years old, but I can't do things like I used to do obviously. But mentally I'm just so clear on everything. That's so I great. Just, I really love this conversation that I'm hearing on the radio because it's like everybody's hurting. Mm-hmm. And all they want to do is give drugs, drugs, drugs. I, I don't I don't get it. So, uh thank you for listening to me and I just hope people out there could just start
3: Oops, we lost them. We, we, we lost him, and I think that was my fault. I'm sorry, Karen. I think I I hit the button by accident there. I'm sorry. Uh, interesting comments in hour one of our program. Yes, it's hour one because our guest is with us for both hours of our show today, Dr. John Huber. We really just started in some of the areas of discussion where I wanted to go with him. He is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health. He is talking with us on our program on the fan Both hours, this Sunday morning.
2: WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a Radio.com sports station.
3: Oh, I love when he comes in here. You know, he's such, first of all, he's such a handsome young man. Very, very handsome young man. That's true. he's very, very well-spoken. I've always thought that. I don't about know him. about that part. No, he is. Um, but funny. I am. What do you mean? He's like, not. That's that's that wasn't a nice thing for you to say. You know, at times I think you're really not a nice person. Actually, wait a minute. You've said that about me. Yes, I have. <laughs> 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 I knew I had heard it somewhere. <laughs> Mink, it's so good to have you here. With I'm here to monitor, you I know, know
7: you I'm set by the
3: program director oh, to monitor this situation. Believe me, I hear from him. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> <laughs> and I know he wants you here monitoring on uh, oh, Sunday. Oh, absolutely. Morning. Not every Sunday. No, but, but here every once in a while. Yeah. Just to keep me on keep my thinking, toes. That's, that's correct. That's a good assessment on your part. And you're a good-looking fellow too. Ah. After our 8 o'clock update, speaking of good-looking fellas, it is Rick Wolf who is along with the Sports Edge program. After our 9 o'clock update, eh, well, uh, uh, Ed Randall will be along. He'll be uh, talking baseball uh, here on The Fan. We're in discussion with Dr. John Huber on our program. Dr. Huber is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health which is a nonprofit organization on the web, by the way, at Mainstream Mental Health. That's all is one word, And we've been talking about a number of things um, in the area of mental health. We've gotten into other areas of discussion as well, uh, too. Um, I'd said that what we would do over the course of the two hours is try to talk to as many people on the phone who want to join us in discussion as we possibly can, 877-337-6666 is our number here at the FAN. We're going to get into a discussion talking about um, some concerns around suicide in just a couple of moments, but let's do another call here before we shift in discussion. Rob has been holding in Lake Success for what must uh, seem like forever.
7: Always always a great great show. And uh, listen, being as a regular caller um, to the station, you know, you put yourself out there, but... I've talked about this on your particular show where you had the neuroanatomist um, as well as the uh, orthopedist uh, uh, periodically. And Mm -hmm. my my situation is, uh, doctor, I happen to be a physician, uh, but I woke up in June of 2016 three years ago, overnight, went to bed normal, uh, and woke up in the morning deaf in my right ear, completely lost my hearing. Sadly, I'm one of 5,000 people. In the country, or actually worldwide, that this happens to every year. It's it's a very unusual condition. They think it happens it happened from a virus. They they don't really know. Bottom line is, I was treated asap. Uh, nothing happened. Uh, it's a very poor uh, um, treatment as far as I took steroids, uh, prednisone uh, yes. for uh, a couple of weeks, and uh, to, they, that that was the, that's the form of treatment. Nothing happened. Ultimately, I'm helping mankind now. I was selected. As one of the few people in the world to get a cochlear implant, single side deafness. Meaning, wow. I, I hear two different sides, I hear two different types of hearing, doctor. Yes. Um, I hear electrical hearing, which is a cochlear implant. I, they've been around since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, people think that a cochlear implant restores your hearing. It does not. I'm mm-hmm. deaf. I take it off. I'm not wearing it now. Um, when I put it on, I, I hear similarly like when people have a voice box, a tracheotomy, they, they put that uh, prosthetic device on that they can talk through the prosthetic device. Correct. It's an electrical type sound with a normal acoustic hearing. But here, here's my, I've, I've learned to accept that part of it. Here's the problem that I that I that I unfortunately I have to live with the rest of my life. And other than going to drugs, which I would never do, one, I'm, an, I'm a competitive athlete and and, and, and still compete I'm a distance runner at a very high level. So I don't take anything. But I have tinnitus. As soon as I lost my hearing, wow. the tinnitus is twenty four seven non stop in the in the one ear. So over time, you just you just learn to. It's it's my new me. I heard one of your previous callers say your new me, and the thing is. You know, I, I help other people in the deaf community, and I talk to them about it. And the deaf world, most of them don't have tinnitus because they've been born deaf. They, they don't know what sound is. They have cochlear implants, and it's a wonderful thing for them because right. they can hear again. Someone like myself, this is horrible because I went to bed normal and awoke deaf. So they don't understand. And, and who I help mainly are the few people like myself. They re- have reached out to me. Uh, on the internet, and, and, and I speak with them, and I consult them, and I send them in, in the right direction. But my problem is myself, meaning, you know, it's part of life. How do you treat tinnitus without drugs? Any type of drug type? Uh, type? I, I'm not going to go down that road. Is this something that uh, I'm going to have to just learn to accept forever? Which I have. Maybe it's three years already, and I was, you know, it was tough a couple years ago. When you wake up, you, you go out of your mind. I mean, you know, what's going on? I thought I had stroke. But as right. it was, is the, the hearing just shut down. There's a small artery in, in the cochlea, uh, which is the size of a pea, uh, which basically is the control of your hearing, the blood supply. And, and it, it just probably just shut down over time. And for whatever reason, I, I, they don't really know. Right. Um, how so, do so you, now
2: you, have, you have tinnitus? You have nerve damage from that death as
7: well. Well, that- you know say tonight is is in look it's something you it's a noise in your head but what i hear everybody has different types of sound right. mine is, is kind of like a dial tone 24/7 imagine picking up the phone and you hear a dial tone and that's what you hear for every day 24/7 Oof. but well listen you learn to accept it and you kind of block it now when i put my cochlear implant on my device okay, okay. the prosthetic it it, it it takes it away But you can't. I can't wear it twenty four seven. Number one, then I got to deal with the other condition of of hearing two different sounds. I've got to say, okay, now 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 I got the electrical side, (laughs) and 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 that's why I'm a study. It's not even FDA approved. They they haven't. People in my condition, uh, they go for the cochlear implant, not for the hearing aspect. They go for it for the tinnitus because the hearing is something that they're not even sure if it's if it's a good treatment. Meaning, you know, in the United States of America, I'm going to test of maybe a couple hundred people in the country that have this device. Because they don't know if electrical hearing with acoustic hearing is a good match. I find it's okay. I've accepted it. I get used to it. But I can't live with the device all the time. Um, And and how do you deal without taking any form of drugs? And I'm not going down that road. Is it just something my brain will, will just have to, over time, as time continues... The, the the new normal me will just accept it one hundred percent.
2: It sounds a lot like like phantom pain. That the,
7: hey, well, it, it, they, but here's the thing. Yeah, that's correct. They, but the doctors say that. But I really believe in in the, in the center in the hearing center in the in the uh, in, in the in the brain. What happens is the the ear is open. It's been open for fifty I don't fifty five years of, of my life at the time when I lost my hearing, and it shuts down. So it's like the the brain wants to hear. It's not. It's
2: not. Well, it's and that—that's the—that's—that's kind of what happens with phantom pain. You don't actually have a stimulus boy, there, Right, your brain have is the so used to having stimulus there that it kind of creates its own.
7: Right. Cre- the brain is creating its own stimulus.
2: Right. It's exactly what's going so, on. So, you know, staying away from medicine, uh, I I would explore uh, some form of hypnosis. I know it works great for pain, and if you have a good hypnotherapist who can take that, because essentially that that tone is driving. You crazy, it's painful in a psychological sense.
7: Let me me put it this way. If if anybody's listening out there who's heard me as a caller, if you have hearing issues, you know, get it treated. And and if you're one of the few people like myself that have lost a hearing in one ear, the cochlear implant is is a wonderful way to get to restore a form of hearing and to get rid of the tinnitus. But, you know, know, I'm I'm unfortunately one of the, the unlucky ones and freaky people out there, and the sad thing is is that these people like myself that are living with this noise and they have not had an implant, okay, uh, to, to block it or, or distract it um, or mask it is a better way. They uh, There are some people that are having a rough time out there, and, and, and they've contemplated what you're talking about, you know, suicide and things like that. Fortunately, uh, I'm a pretty strong person mentally. I'm I, I, That's never been a thought. But other than hypnosis is... I guess what I'm asking you, doctor, is something that the brain over time... Because people have lots of problems in life. We all deal with pain. Right. It's just like it's a form of pain in a way. I look at it that way. I mean, but it's a mental pain um, in one respect, being that it's not physical. Uh, okay, is it Rob, something... Rob,
3: take, take, take a breath for a second. Let him actually respond to you.
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, it's probably going to be there forever for you, uh, much like my patients who come to me with phantom pain. Uh, in, in amputations, that type of stuff. Uh, everybody's different. There's always outliers. You know, and I say start at hypnosis. Hypnosis may not be it for you, but, uh, you know, the, the, we, there's new studies. You know, C- CBD oil, everybody blows up. Oh, it's the perfect, it cures everything. And I've seen it do amazing things for some of my patients with, with seizure disorders. But that doesn't mean it's going to cure everything and it doesn't cure everybody with seizures. Um, there, there's finally actually university studies going on. So we can look and see if it actually is causal for, for this type of stuff, or if it's just kind of like, Hey, you know, the human body kind of repairs itself anyhow. So it was at the CBD oil or it just was going to get better anyhow, uh, with, with your type. I mean, you're talking about, again, uh, a, a very specific uh, situation. I don't know enough about that to say, uh, what's going on and, you know, you, the tinnitus is kind of a, a type of sound stimulated by the brain. It's neurological. It's there's no stimulus there, and uh, the, you need to to keep doing what you're doing, what works for you. But I would explore other other avenues. You don't want to use drugs. No. Then, then definitely I would I would start I would start with hypnosis and you got to realize not every hypnotherapist is a good hypnotherapist and or the best one for you just because it doesn't work for somebody else at that place doesn't mean you won't benefit
7: I, I, my, last, my last my coming and thank you for bringing this this top, kind of topic to the to the <clears throat> To the audience on Bob, I think it's interesting and fascinating. everybody has different things. My thought is hopefully over time because I've almost forgot what it feels like to have bilateral hearing again, normal acoustic hearing. I think it's as time goes on it's going to get less and less as the years pass in my life i'll have totally forgotten what it is, and I'm just you know hoping that this is just something that over time it'll get so. It'd just be a part of my, my 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 right side of my head that okay. I just don't think about it all anymore. It's just part of my normal, you know, me. And Rob, and, and
3: Rob, we got we got to go here. Thank, all right, thank, thank you, very you very much, very Bob. Much. I
7: appreciate right. for giving
3: me the time. Thank you very much for your call, your patience on the phone. We're going to talk more with uh, Doctor John Huber as we continue on our program on the Fan
1: this Sunday morning. And this is something that we have to talk about. This isn't something that we can just keep in whispered tones. And not have the conversation. This has to be open. We need everyone in this agency to be willing to talk about this. This is a problem not only in the NYPD, but all over law enforcement in this country. Besides the two that we lost, a Philadelphia police officer just today lost his life to suicide. It is imperative that we have conversations. There is help available. Reach out. Reach out within this agency. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have someone that you can speak to. If you're afraid to go through this agency, go externally. Get the help.
3: That is the voice of Terrence Monahan, who is the chief of the department in New York City Police Department. He has um, got us started in this segment of our program on the fan. I'm Bob Solter, and we have uh, Dr. John Huber in studio with us. He's been with us since we started our show at 6 o'clock this Sunday morning, after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall's talking Baseball follows our 9 o'clock update. And we shift now into a discussion on this topic of mental health, uh, talking about New York City Police Department. And this move to um, really bring the discussion out of the shadows when you get right down to it. This follows the suicides of two veteran city cops, Within a couple-day period, um, and literally this, as I understand, shook things up in the department, as you would imagine. Uh, There was a uh, suicide of a police officer in Philadelphia. And again, we get into an area of discussion where many times, many times, Dr. Huber, people do not want to go there. Okay? Okay. And this is one of the great dilemmas in our society. Absolutely. Because suicide is something that is a factor in the lives of many people, whether it's concerns about suicide, it's the people who will say that they have attempted suicide at points in their lives then there are the people who have known folks who have committed suicide and many of us do whether it's a family member a close friend could be somebody you knew from the sports world somebody you knew from the entertainment world, um, a news figure. This idea of, to go back to what I was saying at the very beginning of my comments here, bringing this out of the shadows, what's your reaction to what Chief Monaghan is saying? Because he seems to be putting it out there and basically prodding members of his department to get help
2: well and that that's what should happen you know it comes from the top and unfortunately you know first responders police officers firemen ems your emergency room doctors nurses Mm -hmm. you know they get hit with stuff all the time and they see people at their worst not because of something they wanted to have happen And, uh, in in this case, you know, you, you can't save everybody. You get frustrated. Uh, the world piles up on top of you and it's much more than just being depressed and everybody's had grief. They've lost something. Uh, when, when patients talk to me about this suicide thought, you know, they feel like at that moment, the only option is that, uh, there's no coming back. And, Uh, they're totally despondent. They think they're such a burden on their family, friends, neighborhood, everybody else, that they're only doing society a favor by doing this. I mean, everything is so skewed in their perception of things. And uh, we have to get out there and talk about it. It's a whole idea for, for mainstream mental health. I mean, we have to get out there and talk about these things so people aren't afraid. They, they think somehow it means you're broken, and what it means is you're a human being. You care about things. You care about your life. You care about other people's lives, and uh, you get despondent. You just and, and things shut down. We gotta we gotta have it on the on the front burner, and I think that's exactly what the chief's doing. And I think that's that's what needs to happen. But it needs to be every day. It needs to be you know before they they have their meeting in the morning before they walk out the door. And there are resources. You know, you don't have to do it within house. Whether you're working at, at, you know, RCA, Motorola, CBS, whoever, or the police department. You know, it, right here in, in in your own city, you've got a suicide hotline. It's two one two six seven three three thousand. Nationwide hotline It's one eight hundred two seven three talk. Real simple, and uh, you know. The, the covenant house one eight hundred nine 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 nine. it's real simple uh, they're not going to fix your problems but uh, there's people out there who care we, we don't want you to terminate whatever's going on and once that happens there's nothing we can do to help you right. and you just pass it on the people who know you then are psychologically given your burdens I mean it, it's the burdens don't end it's uh It's a difficult thing to realize, but when I talk with families, when I talk with suicide survivors, people who pulled the trigger and survived the gunshot wound, you know, took the overdose and survived the overdose, and uh, there's a study that was out a few years ago from people who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and survive, and 100% of those people are like, what was I thinking? Nothing was so bad, but they don't realize that until after they pull the trigger. They don't realize it until they miss the net. Going over the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge. And what that tells me is everybody else who didn't survive was having that same thought as they were going away and they were perishing. That's got to be even worse when you have that instant understanding right then. But the second before then, the only option they had was that. So, you know, we have to go back and look at family and friends. And they talk to me, oh, somebody comes to you as suicidal. What do you do? Well, there there's only certain things I can do. I mean, if somebody wants to take their life, I have seen patients try so many different ways, and you know, we we may talk about them just because we talk about them today. They already thought of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I'm not teaching anybody anything they don't know, right? You know, so if you don't have a if you don't have a bridge to jump off, you don't have a building to jump off of. You don't. You know, you can hang yourself. Anthony Bourdain's perfect example. Use the, the The belt of a robe. Okay, I mean, you know, what do we do with prison inmates we worry about? We take away their socks, their belts, their shoestrings, their underwear, anything that can be used to strangle themselves with. But what else do they do? Well, they climb up on anything they can get any kind of height on, and they take swan dives into the concrete floor trying to break Mm -hmm. their necks. Mm -hmm. They run across the cell slamming their heads up against the bars as hard as they can. It is... You know, if something they want to do, they're going to find a way to try and do it. So I make them do the contract knowing that, uh, you know, if the judge does not commit them because of my recommendation or whatever, or whatever civil commitment we do to protect people like this, that if they walk out the door, that that contract's not going to keep them from killing themselves if they really want to. That, that contract is uh, what ethics and what law says I have to do. And it basically protects me as a, as a practitioner and uh, it really doesn't do much for the, for the client, you know, but when I've done everything I can do, the judge has done everything they can do. Right. Unfortunately, that's, that's what I have left. So we have to get to people before they get to that point. And that's where talking about depression, talking about these things long ahead of time are important. I mean, we lose between 120 140 people every day in this country to suicide. Far greater than most places have homicides. I mean, we lose about thirty-six to thirty eight thousand people a year just off of homicides. Yet <laughs> we get about double that with suicides in this country.
3: You know, it's the the figures are amazing and to go back to something you mentioned a couple of moments ago. Um, talking about situation in San Francisco, California, with the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, there's a whole. I, I hate to use this word because I'm not trying to glorify this, but there's a a phenomenon surrounding this idea of the number of people who have jumped off the Golden Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, it's it's it, you know. First of all, I could never even conceive of something.
2: Like Absolutely. That, okay. I,
3: I, j- I just could not, okay? Um, but just the idea that this has its own legacy and the like that's that's
2: well, you know, it, it's it's funny. Uh, and and funny in a in a science kind of way, not like haha funny, right. that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know the opposite of depression is not happiness; it's resilience. Being able to just deal with everything, and when you lose that ability for whatever reason—stress, you know, m- medical issues, mm-hmm. whatever—you know you become less and less resilient as that happens. And at some point, the only pathway that that you find is. Termination, and it's it's bizarre when I see a fourteen year old who's you know the the highest group for women right now is ten to fourteen years of age. That's the highest attempt rate, not necessarily success rate. Um, that that's a scary thing, you know. These are our future mothers, like that, and we're seeing high, rates as high as twenty percent attempting one in five, you know, and that young
3: bullying. Body shaming. I mean, there's a
2: whole social media. Well, yeah. Well, now now because all that body shaming, the bully. We used to get a break. We'd go home. Mom and dad weren't doing that in most cases, right? Mm. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. There are a few we know the realities of it, but now you never leave it. You got your cell phone. You got your your instant messaging. You got your tablet, and you never leave that. It's always there. But the reality of it is, and and what what. It boils down to you make a decision. Those people didn't make the decision for you. Mm -hmm. And it goes down to resilience, coping skills, and we as family members and friends need to help encourage that resilience because if we go after, oh, quit being so depressed, well, if it was that easy, they would have already done that. So you start talking about what skills they do have and introduce how they can use the skills they have to make themselves stronger and uh, cuz they can't always see their skills they can't always see the things they have because they're so despondent
3: mm. and then there's the whole thing of the peer pressure
2: absolutely
3: around that age uh too and one group we have not mentioned and some of the people listening to us <laughs> may literally be screaming back at their radios yes because very often we hear it stated in The figures seem to always be in the 20s, the number of veterans who commit suicide every day.
2: An average is about 22 a day nationwide.
3: I want you to think about this because we're going to take a pause uh, for some messages and we'll get Mr. Minko's updates uh, in. When we come back, I want you to talk with us about, I guess, where we are with that. And also, how it is we as a society go about making, getting a handle on that a priority. Because to me, that's an atrocity. And I really don't understand why it is that that doesn't seem to be a real priority. We'll tackle that when we come back. We're talking with Dr. John Huber on our program. You want to join the conversation, 877-337-6666. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with Sports Edge. Uh, Ed Randall's talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We are in a discussion, as we have been since we started our show at 6 this morning, with Dr. John Huber. He is chairman for Mainstream Mental Health Mainstream Mental Health, that's all is one word, .org, the website. He's a clinical forensic psychologist, and he's talking with us on our program. What I said we would do as well is to take some calls from some of the folks listening to us, 877-337-6666. Before we paused for our update and messages, I had asked about the situation with veteran suicides and how it is that we, I guess— start to get a handle on this, make this a priority. Um, And the other aspect of this is how bad is the situation facing vets who want help?
2: The situation is is overwhelming for most of them, actually. I mean, you know, you you come from a culture, the military, where if you have a mental health issue, even something as simple as grief and loss – You know, like say you have a family member who dies, passes away while you're active duty. Uh, You know, you become a potential liability in the battlefield. So instead of uh, trying to remediate that, help you get through that, you know, they tend to ostracize. And the last thing you want to do is not be with, you know, your brothers. Right. You know, and so you hide it. You don't say anything. You become angry and aggressive Cause that's the socially acceptable emotion men can have, especially in the military, but in general across this country. And, uh, it, it, you know, can make you a better warrior, you know, and look good in your eyes to to your peers. The problem is when you come home and the world, hopefully in, in your living room is not a battlefield. And, uh, Unfortunately, you're still trained that way. And I, you know, on, on, you know, what can we do with it? I would really love to see a four-week boot camp to become a civilian again. You know, we do it, it makes you a boot camp, and it makes your survival chances so much significantly higher by doing boot camp. We know that. Military has been doing it for hundreds of years because it increases your survivability. But you get a nice little 30-minute interview And they send you out the door. Everything okay? You depressed? You having nightmares? You know, just about every one of the veterans I've worked with has been having nightmares. Mm -hmm. And they had them at a point and they, oh, I can handle it. It's not that big deal. But five years later when they're still going and they finally are at their wit's end, they walk in to go see somebody at the veterans administration. And it's not that they don't want to help you. It's just, They don't have enough people there to provide the services. And depending upon where you're at across the country, times vary. I do get reports in certain areas that, hey, you know, I was able to get in in a day or two or that day. Uh, But, you know, you're talking about a culture that is very fearful of mental health illness. So they don't really want to go to the local emergency room because they won't understand the military history and maybe some of the things that they've seen. You know, but you'd be surprised how many veterans are, are working right there as physicians and ER physicians and nurses. So you shouldn't be afraid to do that, but that's part of what happens. And they want to go see other military personnel. However, I get reports that they felt like they were still this liability, even with mm-hmm. medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's they're ready to get help then, and they get told, even if it's just a few weeks, but there are some places I've been told by people who call in and leave me messages or email me that some places it's as high as 13 months because the, their local VA is so overwhelmed. It's not because they don't want to help. It's just the manpower. And uh, then we have to look at the whole other side of the feminine issue. You know, we have women out there who, who gave everything to serve this country. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be the woman who is the reason why some politician says, okay, women can't fight and and be in combat areas anymore. So there the research is showing up to 200% less likely to go get mental health care as a veteran than a civilian woman is. Because they don't want to be that poster child for not letting women in the battle because that's what one of the things they wanted to do you know that y- you have that drive and if somebody tells you no you can't do it talk about dehumanizing you and making you less um, and they don't want to be that poster child because there are other women out there who feel that same way just like there are men out there who do that exact same thing mm. it's a tough situation
3: Dr. John Huber is who we are talking with on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Rick Wolf and the Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. Let's go back to the phone. 877-337-6666 is our number. Bob has been holding in Little Ferry, New Jersey since, well, I think when he went on hold, (laughs) General Washington was going across New Jersey, I believe, at that time. Good morning, Bob. Welcome to The Fan.
8: Good morning, and
3: good morning, Dr. Huber.
8: Good morning, Bob. I would like to start the phone call by saying that I did have Sir Winston, and I've been on hold ever since Sir Winston won, <laughs> telling everybody <laughs> in the family that I won the at the uh, Belmont States.
3: Congratulations.
8: <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Dr. Huber, quickly, is suicide a crime
4: legally?
2: You know, Whenever we harm anybody in our society, you know, we try to criminalize it. the The reality of it is, you know, we say it's illegal because we don't want you taking human life. That I have never seen anybody prosecuted for attempting to kill themselves. I've never seen somebody okay, okay. get charged. Now, I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I've just never seen a judge sit there and actually charge somebody. All right, but uh, let's
8: leave it at that. <laughs> I, I understand that I just asked the question
2: kind of rhetorically, but uh <laughs> i said
8: what you did. Um I believe and I don't have any statistics to back this up, but I believe people of poverty, people that struggle in lives, people that have families and oh so many problems. We couldn't even list them in a, in ten pages of uh writing their life story have a low record of suicide. Yet the people that are affluent or that have a lot to live for, isn't it crazy that it's a higher percentage of those people committing suicide? I truly believe a couple of things, that people that in their own minds believe that they are expected to produce so much more from their lives And if, in fact, they don't seem to be able to believe that they are, in fact, doing that, it starts the cycle where they go, my God, I'm coming up short. I I don't know what to do. I'm a loss. And to tie in with what you said about the GIs, uh, Bob, where you brought that up, to me, I I think you use uh, the word uh, conversation. Uh, I would use the word conversation that every GI that comes out should have a mental health conversation. And they have to be told how to cope with life the way it is because they've been taking orders. They've been told if they're in the foxhole and the enemy is shooting bullets, I want you men, go, jump out of the foxhole and run right into the fire. You're, You're programmed to do that, and your whole life is disciplined that way. When you're back in life, you don't have that. And somehow you think when you get out of the service that you're a hero. You served in these situations, and you're a hero. And all of a sudden you find out, I'm just a regular schlup, and I'm not a hero. And yet people, oh, you served, you must be a hero. And right away, see, that starts working with them, where they feel that they're coming up short. Basically, I think that to really get to the bottom line of all of this, uh, Dr. Huber, is I believe starting in high school, we need to have mental health mandatory classes for all the students. And they have to be presented in a way where as a student, when you hear that, by the way, one o'clock this afternoon, we're having a mental health class, everybody's going to be scared. Uh, they don't want to go, they're they're embarrassed, uh, they, they don't need this, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They have to be told how to cope with life and the challenges of life and that it's not wrong to feel that you may come up less than you expect yourself to be in certain situations. That's okay. It's part of life, and you do what you have to do. So I really believe that if we educate students from the high school age, uh, to face things and go on that it makes it easier for people to cope. Uh, this one girl, and I mentioned this to you, Bob, years ago, uh, the girl up in Bergen County, she was a track star, beautiful girl, a wonderful student, a soccer star, a track star. She was given a scholarship to a Ivy League school, if you can imagine that. She committed suicide. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would ever understand that? But the point is, apparently, she felt, in her mind that in spite of everyone looking at her from the outside saying oh what a wonderful life this young lady has herself she came up short to herself and that's where we need to be able to give these people the outlet to get help i know doctor you mentioned some telephone numbers that that, that's difficult you know what i mean it's a good try but But, you know (laughs) you you can take it from there
2: yeah it, it, it is difficult And, you know, if you can find that data, because basically we see that right now that the suicide rates are more stratified based on age than it is socioeconomic status right now. Uh, If you can find that, what we do know is money and success are a multiplier. If your life is going great, they make your life even better. But if your life, if you're struggling, it makes your struggles even harder. And it's hard to believe that. But, when we see people like Anthony Bourdain, who finally had apparently his life on track and everything going great, and he finally had a you know mm-hmm. bank full of money and then he he takes his own life, you know what people mm-hmm. don't realize is again that money is a multiplier, and it just you know something that somebody else you know they don't have to worry about walking into a restaurant and having somebody who knows you start asking you all these questions, and then the next person does too because they think they know you because they've seen you on TV or they listen to you on the radio station. Mm-hmm. And those things have a burden and a price, but but that success, again, is a multiplier. Multiplies your life and how it's functioning at that moment and your perception of it, which is most significant.
3: Bob, we got to run here, but thank you very much for your patience and for your call.
8: Yeah, and good luck with your work, doctor. Thank you, Bob. Thank you.
3: Do one more call here. Sue in Connecticut, we've only got a couple of minutes.
9: Thanks. All I need is a couple of minutes. Excellent. The home-based program is a partnership with the Boston Red Sox Foundation and Mass General Hospital. They operate the first and largest private sector clinic in the country dedicated to healing the invisible wounds of veterans and their families. As you said they wish there was a program. There is. I think they take anyone can call who needs to call. I believe it's a four-week program. It's amazing. And the Boston VA is amazing. And the TAPS T-A-T-S, organization works with veterans and families and family members of loss. And it is a serious issue. And I've been to, my, to Hartford several years speaking about it. And my senior senator uh, is crickets. He's not, they're, not, they're really not concerned
2: Absolutely. on the level
9: where we need it.
2: Yeah, None of them are,
9: in my opinion. But truly really contact. You said you want a four-week program. It exists. Home base. As a Yankee fan, it's hard for me to say the Red Sox are doing it, <laughs> but the Red Sox are actually doing it. So and thank you. Th-
3: thank you for bringing that to our attention. To I'll definitely look into that and see if we can do something more on in depth on that um, in upcoming time. Interesting areas of discussion, as always, happens on this program. <laughs> Dr. John Huber, who is a clinical forensic psychologist, chairman for mainstream mental health our guest on our program this morning. Since we're talking about suicide, and I want to mention those phone numbers again before we close here. We've got about a minute here. For the person who's listening to us today, and they are concerned about somebody considering suicide or somebody who's listening to us who they themselves are considering suicide. What do you say to that person?
2: You know, usually when I get called in, I have some kind of background on the person, and that, that makes it easier for mm-hmm. me as a, as a professional. But what, when you're not a professional, what do you do? And what, the best thing you can do is, is get them to tell their story and listen. Active listening. Don't just pull out your phone and start, you know. That's part of the problem
3: update your facebook yeah exactly <laughs> right, right, right. you know
2: and and active listening when they say something and and you think they said it in a certain way for a certain reason ask you know ask them in your own words right. you know is this what you're saying mm-hmm. and they get clarity they also get to hear somebody tell them without saying yes i'm listening they actually proved it to them
3: somebody cares
2: yes enough That's to listen yes and that That comes through, and it it does so much right there. And don't ever be afraid to call 911. Police are trained.
3: You mentioned the phone numbers. Do those again for us. All
2: right, New York City, hotline 212-673-3000, and 1-800-999-9999, as well as the 1-888-273-TALK.
3: Thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful discussion on our program, as I expected it would be. Certainly the best with your work. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. And, um, well, after our 9 o'clock update, how can I describe it? Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball here on The Fan.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds.